Welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And this week, we have our pastor on to discuss a sensitive subject. Before I even talk about that, um, I want to mention, because I know a lot of moms listen in front of their kids, this one is not going to be appropriate in front of children. So put your headphones in or wait till they go to sleep um, on this episode. So we have Todd Pastor Todd Bordeaux with us, and he is pastor of Cornerstone, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Houston, Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Houston, and um, also the host of the Kaisis podcast. Um, if you haven't listened to it, you're missing out. Go listen. I'm linking it in the episode notes because it's just so excellent. And if you haven't listened yet, start episode one because they, they've done a couple different series, but that that first series... Um, is very good, um, as is the current one and everything in between. So I get a lot of messages from a lot of you listeners, girls in our group, and um, in, in the top three most common things that people have been reaching out to me, and it always happens a lot right before the holidays, is a, a lot of girls in our group are dealing with friends and, and or family members that are in the LGBT plus community, whether it's a sibling that's come out as gay um, or a cousin or sibling or friend that's um, trans or any number of those things and really struggling with how to navigate it. And so I finally talked to Rachel and said, I think we need to have this discussion because I don't think this discussion is happening a lot. And I think we have a lot of people trying to figure it out. So we thought it would be wise to bring a pastor on and have Todd's voice in this. So Todd, maybe you could just start by talking about why this is an important discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's it's important because a lot of people are confused and obviously it's a growing issue. You know, culture has certainly changed in the last 40, 50 years where when I was going to school, growing up in public school, we really, we may have suspected somebody of being gay or lesbian, but we didn't really know and nobody said anything. And, you know, here we are, 2021, and everybody's talking about it. And 30% of young people now identify in some way with this. And it's, you know, at least in the public schools, it's considered popular. Uh, to identify as transgender or gay, lesbian, or bi. And so, and obviously it's everywhere in TV, movies, and so, and more and more people even in the church are talking about it and saying that they have a concern or they struggle with it. So it's gone from, you know, in a short time where maybe a family member and friend, you know, you knew somebody who had left the, another, you know, wife or husband, but it was pretty rare. Now it's everywhere. There's a lot of heat, a lot of confusion. What do I do now if it's my own child, my sister, my brother comes out as gay or bisexual, etc. So, you yeah, the changes have come so fast. And there's so much heat that the, the church has had a hard time, you know, dealing with it all, which is understandable given how new you know, and how prevalent this is compared to, like I said, you know, 34 years ago. 
thinking about, you know, within my lifetime, um, how TV shows where there might be someone on the show that it was kind of the joke or people laughed it off or, you know, it might be hinted at, but I remember the shows when it was, it became the, you know, it was the first show that showed this, that, or the other, or this, the first show to have um, a prominently gay or lesbian character, or, you know, where it was really big news that this actor or actress, you know, was coming out or a uh, athlete. And, you know, thinking back even like to the, the Greg Luganis and the, the Olympics from, you know, years back now, you know, it was, it was a big deal and it's, it has changed a lot in more recent years about the more openness about discussing these topics, things that would not have been discussed publicly much or being much more uh, addressed. And I think you're right. I think that there is a lot of uh, confusion within Christians and the church about how to address this in a way that is both uh, faithful to the scriptures, but then also pastorally gentle to the people that we're talking to. So let me let me tell you some of the big questions that people have in trying to navigate this. And one of the things I wanted to say is that I don't think this is black and white. Here's the 10 steps on how to deal with this. I think you navigate this with wisdom, with love, with grace, and every situation is different. You know, every situation that you're dealing with. But the big questions that come out a lot, and I wanted to say one of the things that if you have a overwhelmingly Christian family, a lot of times there's contention because they disagree on how to navigate this. So, things that have come to me as specific questions. Do I invite my gay brother to Thanksgiving? And if I do, do I let him bring his boyfriend? Um, same thing with trans. I mean, that that's a basic kind of question, but it's those sorts of questions that come to me. Yeah, and obviously we can't, as you said, every every situation is different. You know, obviously um, there were, but there would be certain guidelines inviting anyone over, gay or straight, you know, bring in another partner. Um, but some of the mistakes I think I've seen Christians make in churches dealing with this, especially when they're own children first, is to panic. Mm-hmm. Because there are certain problems and sins we, we accept, you know, if our son is into alcohol, we're, we're concerned, obviously, but there's not the same type of panic as something like this. But shunning, I, I don't see as ever the answer in Scripture. I mean, Paul's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that I did not instruct you to separate yourself from the sexual immoral of the world and only of the church. Now, you know, if somebody is still in the church and claiming to be a Christian and yet, and yet living a sexually immoral life, in that sense, there's separation, not necessarily physical, but at least as far as, you know, accepting someone as a believer. And when we say a sexually immoral life, we actually mean, you know, living in sexual immorality, not struggling. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So, yeah, you know, I, I've seen a number of parents say, you know, my daughter has a girlfriend now, even though they're adults, we don't allow them over together. I've even heard a father say, when they come over, I go to the bedroom and I wait till they leave. I, I just don't see this type of thing in scripture. Obviously, Jesus ate and drank with sinners and he was criticized for it. These were not all repentant sinners. If they were, that he wouldn't have been criticized for it. So, you know, whenever, whenever your answer agrees with the Pharisees' answer, it's probably not right. Hmm. 
So I just don't see shunning as an answer. There may be unique situations where the family members are so in your face and ignoring your requests and being disrespectful to your own convictions that there may need to be a physical separation. But other than that, if they're willing to, you know, abide by general rules of, of your home and inviting them over. So that's, that's, there, there are some other mistakes, but I'll stop there. You know, I think it's worth at least addressing what maybe the, the opposite, opposite extreme of that um, response would be in, and certainly some, some Christians today um, have, have taken the approach of, you know, you have to accept people um, and not just accept that they are, you know, people made in the image of God and that we should be kind to them, but accept everything that they do and uh, approve of it and support them in all that they do, uh, even when it's in patterns of sin. And so I guess my question is, could you address how that is in, is going in the wrong direction too? Yeah, Christians often ask me, dealing with this with family members, do they need to know where I stand on this? And my answer is usually, do they really not know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's fairly unusual for somebody who's living a gay lifestyle not to know your view of that. So, it, you know, for some strange reason they don't, sure, you can explain it once, but do you have to keep preaching at them? No. And, and usually they know. Mm-hmm. And so once they know and, and they know that you don't approve of the lifestyle, that doesn't mean you don't reach out to them and, and have a relationship. And, and and one of the mistakes Christians make is they sort of try to narrow down a person's entire life by sex. Mm. So people are complicated. Uh, they have very many other problems and interests that go beyond this particular issue. And so it doesn't define them. They are human beings made in God's image. There are many other things you can talk about. And, and so, you know, simply because they say they're gay or, or something like that doesn't mean you can't have a relationship with them. So, yeah, you, you know, to shun someone, you really have to have a good reason. Mm-hmm. When the general principle is to associate uh, with the sexually immoral of the world. And, and we're not even, we're, we're assuming sexually immoral. There are many young people struggling with same-sex attraction who are not sexually immoral. And that's a whole different issue we can get to a bit later. You talked about shunning not being a, a great approach to this. Um, but what are some other mistakes that Christians have made in this? Because I feel like we haven't done real great in how we approach this. Yeah, some of the other mistakes is to change the gospel. In other words, when somebody's struggling with something, we, we address them now as unbelievers when they may be believers struggling. And, you know, to change the gospel to assume you have to reach a certain level of sanctification in order to be considered a Christian, that's very dangerous. I mean, you think about in First Corinthians, Paul's dealing with some who are sexually immoral in the church, and he speaks to them about uniting Christ to prostitutes. In other words, he doesn't assume as soon as he hears of sexual immorality, well, you can't be Christians. You must be frauds. That, that type 
saying is not seen. Paul still has a judgment of charity with Christians who struggle in these areas or committing sins. So that's one of the issues that the gospel is no longer free. It's no longer simply repent of all your sinfulness, but you have to have a certain level of sanctification to be a Christian. The, the next one is not to make distinctions. You know, if, if a young person is struggling with same sex attraction, that doesn't mean he's lusting. Attraction is not the same thing as lust. Um, a heterosexual can find another woman attractive. That doesn't mean he's lusting or thinking about sex. And so if we can't make distinctions that we've always assumed and used in other situations, we, you know, we begin to make accusations against people struggling that all they're thinking about is sex and lusting. And, and it may not be that at all. There's attraction of just finding somebody attractive. There's an emotional attraction. And so not being careful to make any distinctions and, and sort of throwing everything together into lust it's just simply not accurate. It's not biblical. Uh, the other one is not to believe the stories of same-sex attraction. I'm going to give two of them now. One of them is you know, young people have been telling us for years, especially those who grew up in the church, that I fought this. I didn't want to find uh, my same-sex attractive. I knew it was wrong, but no matter what I prayed, no matter what I did, I tried to deny it. It was there. So to not believe them and suggest this is a choice when they all have the same stories. And so that's a mistake because it gives the impression that, well, if they really wanted to change, they could just pray or they could just uh, make a choice. And they've been telling us for years, this isn't what happens. This isn't how they've done it. They've prayed for years. They've begged God to take this thing away that where they find um, people of their own sex attractive in, in a way that's not true of the other sex. So to not believe them is a huge mistake when they tell you this. Now, the other mistake is sort of the opposite is to assume that every person who dabbles in homosexuality is same sex attracted. We see in the Greek world that most of the men in the Greek world had homosexual relationships, but that was for a whole other reason. And so young people, there's a fluidity that some who identify for a while as same-sex attractive, attractive or transgender, they end up later moving out of that. And so not everyone who says they are necessarily are. There are many reasons why a young person may be tempted to identify a certain way in it. So sometimes simply time and maturity, prayer um, is the answer. So it's not trying to put everyone in the same category. Everybody's different. And you really have to listen to the person and, you know, ask questions. And so those are some examples of mistakes that are pretty common. Maybe you can add to them or. We can follow what, up. On. I wanted, I wanted to mention, and this is just me personally, but we have a a young person, family friend, um, that's transgender, and and then also um, a, a close friend of an, another family member, uh, a young person too. One of the things that I'm I'm glad that you 
brought up um, that some people struggle with it as teenagers and then go away from from it. One of the things that helped me just on a just on a personal note in in understanding um, was there's a there's a guy on YouTube that interviews a lot of detransitioners, but they talk a lot about the struggles that got them to the place of wanting to transition. And one thing I learned is a lot of these people in in that specific situation, specifically young people, are really suffering and mm-hmm. hurting and struggling and trying to figure out how how to feel better. Being sensitive to that and um, loving that person, showing them the love of Christ instead of treating them poorly because they very much need people to love them and listen to them. Yeah, I really saw that in the lesbian community because there's certain jobs I've had in my younger days where um, a lot of, of lesbians tend to be part of that type of work. It was social work. And as I got to know them, you see image, many of them who were lesbians, not necessarily were same-sex attractive, but had been so hurt or abused or raped by men that they found safety only with other women. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it was a bad past. And, and I know a heart surgeon in our denomination who told me when it comes to transgender, there are a small, small amount that it is biological because we live in this cursed world and people are born with all kinds of physical mm-hmm. biological issues and, and they may not be in a biological sense, fully male or female, but he says, you know, a majority of it is psychological or it's emotional. Um, lo- you know, lost young people trying to you know, find, find acceptance or, so, yeah, there's a number of different reasons, and we can't throw them all together into one. That would be one of the biggest mistakes you can make. Todd, we're hearing a lot about side A and side B in the discussions about same-sex attraction, especially when we're talking about people in the church that um, have same-sex attraction. Could you define those terms? Yeah, that's actually a good place to start because I'll refer to them a few times throughout the episode. So it's helpful if all your listeners understand what we're referring to. Yeah, side B refers to um, those who are same-sex attracted but believe that sexual relations with members of the same sex um, are sinful. And so they hold to the traditional sexual morality of, of the church and the Bible. And so they would believe that lust for another of same sex of the same sex, and and, and especially of course any um, same sex activity or relations is is sinful and wrong, and uh, and so they seek not to live that way. They determine to confess their lust and not to indulge, which means that they either remain celibate for life or they marry someone of the opposite sex. And so that's what we mean when we say side B, those who still have same-sex attraction, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But at the same time, they hold the traditional view of what God um, condemns. Side A does not believe that a sexual relationship between 
a man and a woman or two men or two women are necessarily sinful. Now they, because God made them that way with that attraction, that desire. And so if it's a loving, committed relationship, some would even say only if it's marriage, then it would not be wrong to have sexual relations. That's the side A view. So we consider like Leviticus 18.22, the most well-known passage. A man sleeping with another man is an abomination to the Lord or lying with another man. It's loathsome in his sight. Now, it only focuses on men there, but that includes women with women. And that's called the androcentric language that the Bible often uses language of the man to refer to both. But And so side B says that means what it says. And side A says uh, that refers to more of the ceremonial law, that there were many things that were unclean under the old covenant, but that was typological. And so that does not apply in the new covenant age. And so God then approves of loving relationships, um, even sexual relationships among same sex. That would be the side A answer to when you bring up Leviticus 18, where it says a man sleeping with another man is an abomination to the Lord. Now, the problem with the side A position on that is verse 24 which says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So the sins listed in chapter 24, most of them sexual sins, but a few of them like um, sacrificing your children to Molech, which is actually murdering your children. These were not part of the ceremony or typological law. These were reasons God brought judgment on the pagan nations. And the pagan nations did not know the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law that was typological revolved around living in Israel and was only given to the children of Israel. So the fact that the nations are being judged for these sins, they're being judged for sins that we would call uh, the moral law or natural law things that we were created not to do. And so it doesn't really work. And also the ceremonial sins in the Old Testament always had cleansing rites that belonged to them. You know, if you touched a dead body, for example, there, there is a way to wash and then become clean. But these laws do not have any cleansing rites that come with it, simply a warning of God's judgment. And the other view of side A is they often say that Jesus never mentions homosexuality at all. But that's not a very good argument because in Israel, that really wasn't an issue. It wasn't one of their sins. Jesus never mentions kidnapping either, but that doesn't mean it's okay. And then Paul is pretty clear in Romans 1 that burning with lust and then fulfilling that is, is an aspect of God's judgment. And the side A argument tends to be tends to be that Paul is only dealing with temple prostitution between uh, people of the same sex, but there's really nothing in that context that would suggest that. So the side a side A view is certainly outside orthopraxy, traditional Christian living, um, and, and it doesn't really it's not it doesn't do a good job of trying to support this from the Bible. 
And so certainly we're free to discuss these things with side A and those who uh, profess their faith, you know, share the gospel with them, et cetera. But it's not something you want to mess around with because it is spoken of where in, in reference to God's judgment on these things. Um, now there is a danger of the church not accepting side B because if we don't accept side B, who's trying to live the traditional sexual ethic, they're trying to follow the Lord. If we don't accept them, then the tendency is to push them towards side A. And that's just something to think about it. But as we talk about this in the podcast, when we're talking about Christians struggling, the context of that is typically side B Christians when I refer to Christians with same-sex attraction. So I I hope that helps um, to start things off. So one of the the big topics in in the conservative Christian world has been um, the Revoice Conference um, in the last few years. And there have been, you know, quite a lot of debate over it. Um, I know that you wrote an article um, a while back about Revoice and, and kind of a way forward for both sides. I want to, we'll include it with the show notes because it was a very useful article. Maybe you could explain a little bit about who Revoice is and you know what the 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 debate is right now. I actually don't know much about Revoice as much as I know about the side B position, which is the celibate, same sex attracted Christian. I mean, one of the, I've never. I think I've heard one Revoice talk in all my years. I'm actually too Jewish to listen to it because I went online once to out of curiosity and I saw what they were charging to listen, and I just couldn't pay it. <laughs> so I don't know too much about specifically. One of the problems with judging something like Revoice is it's a parachurch ministry. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're dealing with parachurch, you're going to deal with people from a lot of different viewpoints. I used to be a Young Life leader. And even within Young Life, you would have people who were, like me, conservative theology, uh, committed to the local church. And then you had leaders who didn't believe in the local church. Their evangelicalism was pretty questionable on their understanding of the gospel, but all of them were part of Young Life. So Mm -hmm. if somebody would ask me, what does Young Life believe about? Well, I could show you on paper maybe, but in reality, that's pretty tough to nail down. So I suspect since Revoice isn't denominational and it's not one church, probably get a lot of different viewpoints. But I'll just focus on the side B position, which is what I'm familiar with. The issue, of course, in Revoice is um, identity or branding or what we call ourselves. That's one of the main issues. Can a pastor be call himself a, a same-sex or a gay pastor, a gay Christian? So that's what, let's say, the PCA is dealing with as far as the officers. Now, the broader question is, can a Christian be a gay Christian? And so sometimes people are dealing with the more specific question is, well, how should officers identify themselves? Which, I don't know, I, there may be unwise ways to identify yourself, but I'm not sure that's the greatest concern as far as mm-hmm. identity. The bigger issue is, if it's legitimate or not in general. I mean, if we're going to talk about unwise ways to identify yourself, this goes way beyond this issue. Hmm. Um, 
I was, it was interesting. I was listening to a pastor who I know, actually I was watching him. He's probably 150 pounds overweight. And he made a joke about his, you know, his um, attraction to food and everybody laughed. And I thought, isn't it interesting that in the area of gluttony, a man could admit his weakness. And, and in this case, he's actually giving into it and they're laughing. And yet a same-sex attracted pastor, and I, and I wrote in my article, it may not be the wisest thing as far as identifying this way, especially for unbelievers who aren't able to make these side A, side B distinctions. Mm. But anyway, that a pastor can't identify even though he is resisting, he's not giving in to the temptation. He's not in a homosexual relationship at all. He can't admit that, but the glutton can joke about actually living a life of giving in and everybody laughs and accepts it. There seems to be some uh, <laughs> um, different standards there. but It reminds me of uh, Jerry Bridges and uh, the talk of uh, the acceptable sense. Right, we have a respectable sense, and we have this sense a lot of times about you know these are things that it's okay to to, to admit to, and these things are things we, no one should ever admit to having struggled with or being aware of. And um, it, most of the time, you know, while there are some obvious you know ones that are almost always on the never admit to these type sense, but most of the time we tend to excuse things that we personally struggle with or, or have weaknesses towards and are very harsh towards the things that we don't. Uh, why can't those people just get their acts together, whatever the issue is. Right. Um, but I just think it's really interesting to, that you're right, that in many ways in this discussion, in these discussions, this particular struggle, this particular sin pattern gets treated in a way that is different from other sins. Yeah, and even think about the side A, side B distinction. And then one of the concerns with the parachurch movement like Revoice is they don't stand clearly against what the Bible does call sin, sin mm-hmm. which is lust, you know, whether heterosexual, homosexual, lust, and then, of course, behavior. But you know, when you think of something like alcoholism, we have side A, side B. You know, if a Christian said, my weakness is alcohol, so I stay away. I don't go to bars, I drink, but I can't be around it, and I'm easily susceptible. That would be a side B position. That would be very acceptable. But if he said, I believe it's okay for Christians to indulge in alcohol, it's a gift from God, and they can get drunk and be alcoholics, etc., we would say, no, that's clearly wrong. So we make these distinctions in other areas. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it would be a problem making a distinction in the area of same-sex attraction, uh, a Christian who wants to live for Christ but struggles in this area. Um, just to describe a little bit more what Todd was talking about, like in the Christian community, this was new to me until a couple of years ago, there are people that say, um, like Todd was describing, the person that says, hey, I'm an alcoholic and I stay far away from alcohol. I, I just don't have the self-control. But there's also in our own circles, people that say, well, if you're a Christian, then you can have the self-control and you should be able to drink a glass of wine and not um, fall into drunkenness. Like, So you can kind of see how 
they do it with other things also. Yeah, so really, as, as we get to know somebody in the church who's struggling with same-sex attraction, we have to understand that. Um, Christians actually, up until the 70s, accepted Freud and his view of same-sex attraction, that it was a psychological disorder. It was actually called that in all the psychological books. And that was, Christians liked that. And actually, homosexuals appreciated it when Freud first explained that, that something goes wrong in their childhood. Uh, there's something in the relationship with the parents, with each other and with the children, and that something gets twisted in their minds. And that's why most same-sex attracted can think back as far as they can remember and say, I've always been this way. Typically something happens when they're young. And if that's true, and we don't know all these things, but if it's true, and personally I suspect it is, then we should not expect conversion to have to completely change those attractions. It doesn't mean God cannot do it, but if it is a disorder, then we would expect that to remain uh, for their life. They can still have that you know, disorder and still be a faithful Christian. We have to be very careful. If we're going to err, always err on the side of acceptance, then closing the doors to the Lord, to the church. Because the warnings in scripture about offending the little ones and causing them to stumble mm-hmm. and trying to tighten the door till that they can't get in the faith unless they this or that, that's a very dangerous thing. That's what the Donatists did who wanted a pure church in the third and fourth century. They wanted it so pure that they ended up forming what ended up being a cult and separating from the greater church. So this tendency to want to make these statements and close the door to the same sex attracted who call themselves gay Christians or, you know, admit they struggle. It's a very dangerous. You don't want to be in the hands of the Lord. If they generally want to believe that we put a stumbling block in front of them, that their orientation has to change in order for them to be a faithful Christian. I would never want to do that. But we would tell them the same thing, that lust is wrong, and obviously acting out on that and with others would be wrong, as it would be with heterosexuals. So we have to make distinctions. We have to open the door as much as possible and be very careful in that sense. You know, I think one thing that's key in in what I'm hearing you say and what I've appreciated in other articles that I've read is when you talk about struggle, we're talking about uh, believers who are actively struggling against a sin pattern in their life. This is not just, well, this is just the way I am and I'm just going to live however I want, you know, whatever the sin is, just live sinning however I want. uh, And you just have to accept me. We're talking about, you know, people who are struggling against their sins, recognizing that it is sinful to act on these behaviors and not wanting to live that way. And I, I'm, I'm trying to, to think, I'm, I'm struggling to, to compare it to any other sin that we would say that's when they, someone became a believer, they no longer struggled with that. Yeah. And, and to not appreciate what they're giving up. Right. Because I, I know a couple very godly Christians who are same-sex attracted and they've committed themselves to singleness all their lives. I mean, we don't do that. Right. We don't experience that type of loneliness and giving up marriage. And so, you know, instead of commending them, 
for that sacrifice for the Lord. And the ones I know want it to be quiet. You know, they don't want, not all of them want to be talking about it. And they're free to or not free to, but the ones I know are very quiet, but they'll admit it to me. They're very good Christians. I have a lot of respect for them. So, you know, we have to respect anyone who's trying to live for the Lord. So, Todd, we we may even have, you know, that we've kind of focused on navigating this with people in your life, but I don't want to neglect to offer encouragement to people that are struggling with this. And I think that there, there are people, even some of our listeners, struggling with this and trying to figure out how to navigate this. And it's I, I do know this from talking to, I have a friend who struggles with this, that it's very, very hard to talk about, especially in the Christian community, just because it's just not something we talk about. And, you know, some of these people are looking at the revoice, they're they're looking at, you know, I, I don't know how to do this because I want to, you know, I'm a Christian and I don't want to act on this, but I also am not sure about some of these other things. Is there some sort of encouragement or um, wisdom that you can offer to maybe somebody that's struggling with this and trying to figure out how to navigate it, struggling themselves with same-sex attraction? Yeah, I mean, I first find someone you can talk to, somebody that has some understanding and experience with the issue and, you know, don't keep it in. It's not going to be healthy. You know, get some perspective, get some guidance and Really, it, uh, it still comes down to whether you're same-sex attracted or not, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow the Lord, and that's, that's going to be a different, that's going to be the issue anyway. But, you know, if you want to follow the Lord and you're struggling, then the Lord himself opens the door to you to come to him with your weaknesses. And, you know, you need to find people who will understand that and, and give you some guidance and how to think these things through and make distinctions and, and, and find that you need to find acceptance. And, you know, you also have to determine whether it is same sex attraction or if it's something else going on, maybe get some help that way. And if you need counseling, you know, typically if it's been going on since you were yet very young, as long as you can remember and you've tried everything and, Nothing's that usually means you're same sex attracted, but if it's something newer, it can be the result of some other things going on. So you want to get help mm. and, and just some guidance in that. But mm-hmm. the, don't don't ever think the Lord rejects you if you want to follow Him because of whatever you're struggling with, and try not to listen to those people who suggest such a thing. So, what are some ways that we can do better? going forward as Christians, like like Colleen mentioned, ways that we can love our neighbors well? Yeah, for one, the church has to get out of the culture war where homosexuals are all looked upon as enemies of America and and, and trying to uh, stereotype them all. You know, we, we hear one story in the news of a gay person who's doing something awful or in a gay parade, and then we sort of stereotype all that way when, you know, maybe 99% of those who are identified as gay or lesbian would never march in a parade. They're not all the same. And so, 
we have to see people as our mission field, people who are in sexual immorality as our mission field and not the enemy. So, you know, as long as you have the view that they're enemies, there's no way they're going to ever be open to the gospel you present because in their minds, God hates them. And so if you hate them and, and your, your language sounds like you hate them, that they're enemies more than any typical you know, conservative, patriotic, heterosexual American who doesn't know the Lord, if they're not equal enemies of Christ, then, as you said, Rachel, before, all you're doing is picking and choosing the sins you don't like. Hmm. And so they're receiving the message, we hate them. So if we care for them and, and we want to build relationships with them, and the way you build relationship with them is not seeing them all as only about sex. See them as real people with stories. You know, whenever I've had a relationship with a, a homosexual a lesbian, it's always, you know, I'll respect you if you respect me. If you're not trying to sort of rub it in my face, then I won't rub my religion in your face and we can be friends and have a respectful relationship. So if they're willing, and they're not always willing either, but if they're willing, then we should be willing. You know, I think you make a really good point about um, about the culture wars, um, and, and not just on this, this issue, but on, on many issues. I think that the the entrenchment that we've gotten, the, the, how, how deeply we are entrenched in, in this warfare mindset, uh, in our culture, um, and as Christians, I think it really is hurting our cause more than than it's doing anything good for our culture. Um, and not to say that we shouldn't have opinions about politics and and what's going on around us. We we do. We should. We should be be active in the the systems around us and and decisions that are made. But that that mindset of you know these are our enemies and. I was thinking about, uh, I think it was the, the first Peter sermon series that, that you did, uh, not too long back now, but you talked about um, that other people, even other people who are not believers, are not our enemies, ultimately, as Christians, that they are, we, we may disagree, but we are, that's not who our enemies are, that our enemies are uh, the spiritual enemies that we have, you know, the evil one, and um spiritual forces that are that's truly the enemy you know sin and death are the enemy right um but when we see other people that we should see them like you said as our mission field that as as people made the image of god that we want that we may disagree with but we should love them and treat them well and want their best yes i saw a fascinating survey that they interviewed thousands of conservative americans and when it comes to Muslims in the United States. And if they believe that Muslims really want to enforce Sharia law, if they had an opportunity, and how many of them then are dedicated Muslims? And a high amount said yes. But then when asked about the Muslim, they actually knew their doctor, you know, their neighbor. The number was much lower. And so, you know, we develop these generalizations, these stereotypes, until we actually know one. Because many people, you know, that's how they know a Muslim, it's their doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, something. And then when they get to know their doctor, they think, okay, they're not like that. They, they seem pretty normal. So, 
you know, instead of trying to come up with these stereotypes you see on the television or in the movies or in the news, just get to know the, the person. And it's usually much different than you assume. I, I have this uh, Google document where I write down good things I hear on podcasts just because I want to remember them. But one of them, and I mentioned it before, but I think it fits into this discussion is somebody was talking about how, you know, we shouldn't ridicule or mock somebody for being wrong. And I think sometimes Christians do that on this subject. There's a sort of just open ridicule or mocking these people um, or that community. Yeah. I mean, it seemed Jesus uh, limited the mocking to, at times, to the Pharisees, but not to the sinners in that sense mm-hmm. at all. So I think one of the big questions that so we have so many moms in our group, young moms, um, that people are struggling with is, is in regards to, so if you have a hypothetical situation, your brother is gay and he comes over, do I let his boyfriend come over too? And how do I talk to my children about this? Yeah, those are actually two different questions, aren't they? Um, Mm -hmm. As far as having them over, yeah, I mean, again, it's there's some basic guidelines that they would need to adhere to. Um, Not making others uncomfortable with, you know, certain things. But I don't know how, how you not allow people over unless there's something unique about the situation. I mean, to me, if they're willing to come over to these you know, dedicated Christians homes and they're willing to come over, that's a pretty big deal. That should say a lot of positive about you. Um, so I would say unless something unusual is going on, have them over. That's exactly what the apostle Paul told us to do. And I wanted to interject real quick before you get to the next thing. That and I shared this with um, Todd and Rachel before we recorded. But in the '80s, which things were very, very different, my my parents worked with a, a homosexual gentleman, and he had a partner, and they invited him over for Christmas, and and they were respectful, you know, when they came over. Um, they knew my parents were Christians, but we had opportunities to share the gospel with them and to show them the love of Christ. Now, some people disagreed with my parents doing that. Um, but for me, it actually taught me very much. I, I loved these, these guys um, dearly. I lost one of them to AIDS, but it, it taught me so much to see my parents show them love, um, even though they disagreed with the lifestyle they'd chosen. Yeah, and I would add if the child teenager or even an adult comes out as transgender or same-sex attracted or something one of the problems that parents are assumed that they have to be parent psychologist therapist mm-hmm. and pastor and so they're trying to do everything and they're getting all this new information it's a bit overwhelming so i would just encourage them you don't have to be everything get help it's good to start off just by listening, asking a lot of questions so they know you're trying to understand them. You don't have to give the lecture right away. Mm-hmm. You know, take it all in and then go get some help, get some different perspectives, get some counsel on how to deal with it, 
because if you jump in guns, you know, raging and with all the Bible verses and the answers, it just might be too soon when you, you may regret it. And so no one's calling you to be everything to that child. And, and there are, there's a lot of help out there and I encourage them to get as much help and perspective as you can and, and just go slow. Um, you know, this is one of those topics because like Pauline said, you know, we have uh, friends and family in our own lives um, we've had to navigate this ourselves and, you know, having to, even with watching the news, having to answer a lot of questions for my children when they hear topics and they're like, well, what does that mean? And, you know, what, what do we do with this? And you know, what are some pastoral guidelines or suggestions for how to talk to our kids about, about the, not necessarily our kids are struggling with it, but that our kids are hearing about it from other people and how do we talk to them and t- talk to them about how to deal with people? Yeah, it's a good question. I talked to my own kids about this when they were young enough because I knew that they would hear about it. And even homeschoolers, unless they're completely um, not allowed to watch any television or be on the internet, they're going to see this anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked to my kids about not trying to sort of pin this down to one thing, that there's a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it could be simply lust. Oftentimes it's same-sex attraction, there's confusion, there's abuse, um, there's loneliness, and people find acceptance with one particular group. So I tried to explain to them why people are caught up in this and, and the difference between, again, simply struggling with it and actually living it out. And then I teach them to, you know, we don't shun them, we're compassionate, we're an example of Christ to them. If, if our kids are straight, that we don't, we shouldn't worry that they'll be tempted. Mm. You know, it doesn't usually work, work that way. If, you know, they're in a healthy home. So yeah, I, I just sort of prepared them for what's out there, what they're going to see, and you know, encourage them to be compassionate with their friends, and and that's how Christ was. You know, general talks like that. I would add that one of the things I emphasize in talking about the kids about these or any other type issues is that safety is first. So just because you're compassionate with a, with someone doesn't mean you go alone with them somewhere, whether a bar, their house, or a party. You need to be safe. You need not assume that you're too strong. Parents need to know where you are. So don't use the excuse of being a good Christian to do things that are going to be very dangerous. Safety always is first. It's very helpful. Todd, have you found any good resources on this topic? And if there is anything, I, I don't know how you're going to answer. We can put it in the episode notes, going to definitely link your article. But is there anything else you found helpful? Yeah, I mean, I would say I found Sam Alberry's Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, that's a fairly standard side B position. I thought it was very helpful. It's a little book that pretty easy to order. Um, now it's that book has become very controversial. But when it first came out, it wasn't. It was considered a, a really good resource um, for you know, Orthodox Christians to understand the issue from somebody who does have same-sex attraction, but who lives a celibate life for the Lord. So I, you know, I I'm not familiar with some of the Revoice guys what they write. I, I don't usually read that stuff. Not because I'm again, I just don't. But but the Sam Elberry book I found was pretty good. 
and we can link that that one in the episode notes for sure. I, I'm going to pick it up because I haven't read it. Well, we appreciate you coming on to talk about this. We we really wanted to have a pastoral perspective on this, and it's such a difficult topic. I hope that we can do better going forward in the church in having fruitful discussions about this, having love for the people that are struggling, you know, in our churches. Um, I, I know from the people that I know that it's very hard to talk about and not even always something that they want to admit to other Christians because of bad experiences when they have. So definitely hope that we can do better going forward. Yes, we're going to have to because it's going to be more common as we we can't, you know, bury our heads in the sand. This is going to be everywhere. and Everyone's going to know people like this. You know, if our culture is anything like the Greeks, where we're only, you know, one-tenth of what the church dealt with back then. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we're going to have to be wise and, and loving and, and still true to the scriptures. And yeah, you're right. Well, thank you, Todd, for joining us. If you haven't listened to Kaisis, Todd's podcast, then go and subscribe right now because so much good on that podcast. Um, definitely right now, my favorite Christian podcast. And um, I think that's it. Would it, we would will... it be your, your, your second favorite? Well, my podcast is not my favorite. Oh, so. okay. No, I'd much prefer to listen to someone else than myself. <laughs> well, you know, the rural, rural, nobody likes to listen to their own voice. <laughs> yes. People that that are listeners, um, it when I since I've always edited the podcast, it took me it's it's really hard to listen to your own self, but somebody in a podcast group said, you gotta just do it and you'll get used to it. And that not that I love it, but I'm more used to it. <laughs> now, but take some time. Well, we will see you all next week. <laughs>